We come then now today to the eleventh lecture in this series, and we've hit the stage of the uh, the basis for Machen's fighting. And the last lecture we looked at the Bible, his use of the Bible, the importance of doctrine uh, and f- historical facts in his understanding of the Bible. The Bible. Machen regarded the Bible chiefly for what it revealed about God's intervening in history, and that is why those historical events were were important. It wasn't simply because the Bible needed to be true because he believed in inerrancy, but it was also it was mainly because he believed he was a sinner and needed a savior, someone who entered into into human history and bore the guilt of his sins on the cross and rose from the dead, etc. So that historical reality and the, the events narrated in Scripture were crucial uh, to Machen's understanding of the Bible, but also of Christianity and what Christianity is, and why liberalism was a different religion. And of course, the Bible, he also makes the point that the Bible not doesn't simply narrate the events, especially those events surrounding the life of Christ, but it also interprets those events and therefore gives doctrine. And Machen spent a lot of time on the, the Apostle Paul and his teaching and writing, and that was also very crucial for preparing Machen to um, interact with critique liberalism the way he did. But having said, mentioned the importance of doctrine, it's obviously the case. Listeners, watchers, viewers would have noticed this already. This isn't going to be any kind of revelatory moment, but it wasn't just any doctrine for Machen. It was the doctrines of the Reformed faith. Machen was very much devoted to the Westminster Standards, confessions and catechisms, uh, confession and catechisms. He's also very committed Presbyterian, as you might have detected. So what I want to do in this lecture is, is just mention a number of the ways in which you see Machen appeal to the Westminster Standards Westminster Confession in his opposition to um, to liberalism, and this will also be indicative then of the importance of uh, creeds, confessions for uh, his his stance, why he fought the way he did, and by the way, it's also why I regard Machen not as a fundamentalist but as a Presbyterian. That he makes much more sense as a Presbyterian by noticing these aspects of his uh, ecclesiastical identity. So back to the organic union, that plan from 1920, which was going to merge the PCUSA in with about seven, eight, nine, ten other denominations into one uh, Protestant body for the United States. Um, What this plan uh, did was have a very minimal creed that tried to find the lowest common denominator by which all the churches could merge. And Machen um, wrote about that plan or that effort to find a lowest common denominator in this way. There are entirely too many denominations in this country, says the modern ecclesiastical efficiency expert. Obviously, many of them must be merged, but the trouble is they have different creeds. Here is one church, for example, that has a clearly Calvinistic creed. Here is another whose creed is just as clearly Arminian, let us say, and anti-Calvinistic. How in the world are we going to get the two together? 
Why, obviously, says the ecclesiastical efficiency expert, the thing to do is to tone down the Calvinistic creed, which, by the way, is sort of what happened in 1906 with the revision of the Westminster Standards. Just smooth off its sharp angles until Arminians will be able to accept it. Or else we can do something still better. We can write an entirely new creed that will contain only what Arminianism and Calvinism have in common so that it can serve as the basis for some uh, who propose a new united church. Machen goes on. This is from his article called Creeds and Doctrinal Advance. When we pass from these modern statements to the great creeds, what a difference we discover. Instead of wordiness, we find conciseness. Instead of an unwillingness to offend, clear delimitation of truth from error. Instead of obscurity, clearness. Instead of vagueness, the most definiteness and precision. All these differences are rooted in a fundamental difference of purpose. These modern statements are intended to show how little of truth we can get along with and still be Christians, whereas the great creeds of the Church are intended to show how much of truth God has revealed to us in His Word. So here we have this maximalism versus minimalism. Um, Machen was arguing for a maximalist understanding of doctrine, and that's part of the reason why he took such, um, such delight in the Westminster Standards. And I think it's important to notice, too, and this is going to uh, be important for the Orthodox Presbyterian history, and I'll maybe say a little bit more about this in, in the last lecture ahead, but the, the, the tendency of evangelicalism, 20th century evangelicalism, which begins, you could argue, in the 1940s, they want to find a lowest common denominator of faith as well. It's going to be more elaborate, more orthodox than what liberals produce, but it's still going to be a lowest common de denominator. And the reason is very similar. Liberals were trying to do this in order to find the way to forge one common denomination. They were doing it for the sake of church union. Evangelicals do it also to find organizations that will include as many people as possible under that tent. It's, it's a big tent way of doing things to have the lowest common denominator. And I mean, and this is uh, perpetuated by the mainstream media or, or, or journalism, as it were. Imagine if people writing about religion in the United States had to actually identify people not by, when it comes to Protestantism, not by liberal, mainline, or evangelical. Those are easy categories to use because to figure out if this is a Pentecostal holiness Wesleyan something or other, or a Presbyterian associate reform, whatever, try to find all, all of those ecclesiastical differences would be, take a lot of work. So with evangelical mainline, it's solved. And then you throw one more category, black church. Oh, great. Okay, we've got it covered, which isn't exactly the case. So, um, so anyway, that's a tendency that, that evangelicalism also uh, feeds into. So that was one example with the organic union. Also, when it came to the Auburn Affirmation in 1923, I'm skipping over the Christianity and liberalism, where it's actually the case that Machen doesn't talk as much about the Westminster Standards or the Westminster Confession as he might. He does talk about subscription. He does clearly invoke doctrinal categories from the, the catechisms and confession. But it's less explicit there because I think in part he's writing for a wider audience. Um, which he was successful in doing and reaching. 
But the counter, he, Machen wrote a counter affirmation to, to counter, to go against, to oppose the Auburn affirmation. And this is, these are some of the points that he made in that uh, counter affirmation. This is from 1923. The right of interpretation of the scriptures and of the system of doctrine contained in the confession does not mean that any officer of the church may interpret the scriptures or the system of doctrine described in the confession as he pleases. Every interpretation must conform to the meaning of the scriptures and of the system of doctrine contained in the confession where the meaning is clear. The interpretations for which tolerance is asked in section 4 of the Auburn Affirmation reverses the plain meaning. Thus, the affirmation really advocates the destruction of, confe of the confessional witness of the church. To allow inter interpretations which reverse the meaning of confession is exactly the same thing as to have no confession at all. So, another instance of where Machen was defending the confessional witness of the church. And then, in 1929, with the founding of Westminster Seminary, Machen was clear, as you might be able to tell from the name of the seminary itself, that this seminary was going to be devoted to the Westminster Standards. He, he said there in 1929, the convocation that began the school year, biblical theology is not all the theology that will be taught at Westminster, for systematic theology will be at the very center of the seminary's course. At this point, an error should be avoided. It must not be thought that systematic theology is one whit less biblical than biblical theology is, but it differs from biblical theology in that, standing on the foundation of biblical theology, it seeks to set forth no longer in the order of time when it was revealed, but in the order of logical relationships, the grand sum of what God has told us in his word. There are those who think that systematic theology on the basis of the Bible is impossible. There are those who think that the Bible contains a mere record of humans seeking after God. But to the number of those persons, we do not belong. We believe for our part that God has spoken to us in his word and that he has given us not merely theology, but a system of theology, a great logically consistent body of truth. He goes on to say, to identify what that system is. It is the body of truth which we find in the Bible is the Reformed faith, the faith commonly called Calvinistic, which is set forth so gloriously in the Confession and Catechisms of the Presbyterian Church. It is sometimes referred to as a man-made creed, but we do not regard it as such. We regard it in accordance with our ordination pledge as ministers in the Presbyterian Church, as the creed which God has taught us in his word. We rejoice in the approximations to that body of truth which other systems of the theology contain, we rejoice in our Christian fellowship with other evangelical churches. <clears throat> we hope that members of other churches, despite our Calvinism, may be willing to enter into Westminster Seminary as students and to listen to what we may have to say. But we cannot consent to impoverish our message by setting forth less than what we find the Scripture to contain, and we believe that we shall best serve our fellow Christians from whatever church they may come if we set forth not some vague, greatest common measure among various creeds, but that great historic faith that has come through Augustine and Calvin to our own Presbyterian Church. What's striking about that paragraph is that Machen is aware that they need students, perhaps from outside the Presbyterian Church. 
and he, they'd like other people from other churches to come study at Westminster. But we're not going, that he wasn't going to, to cut back on the, on the Calvinistic or Presbyterian character of what Westminster was doing. And he believed, and this is something echoed in, in the work of Cornelius Van Til, that Presbyterians would best serve the larger church by being true to their own convictions. Uh, and then one last point about uh, where you see Machen relying upon appealing to the Westminster Confession and Catechisms comes in his sermon as moderator of the General Assembly in 1936, a sermon called Constraining Love that I used a few lectures ago, if not the most preceding one. Um, he says, Machen writes, or says there, what a wonderful open door God has placed before the church of today. A pagan world, weary and sick, often distrusting its own modern gods. A saving gospel, strangely entrusted to us, unworthy messengers. A divine book with unused resources of glory and power. Ah, what a marvelous opportunity, my brethren. What a privilege to proclaim, not some partial system of truth, but the full glorious system which God has revealed in his word and which is summarized in the wonderful standards of our faith. What a privilege to get those hallowed instruments in which that truth is summarized down from the shelf and write them in patient instruction by the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the tablets of the children's hearts. What a privilege to prevent our history, <clears throat> our, our, our standards in all their fullness in the pulpit and the teacher's desk and in the Christian home. What a privilege to do that for the one reason those standards present. Not a man-made creed, but what God has told us in a holy word. What a privilege to proclaim that same system of divine truth to the unsaved. What a privilege to carry the message of the cross, unshackled by compromising associations to all the world. So, uh, pretty, pretty uh, inspirational rhetoric there in that sermon about the, the, the way, the need to carry the Reformed faith summarized in the Westminster uh, Standards to all these aspects of Christian life and Christian witness. And as you can tell from that, um, one of the other ways in which you see Machen, Machen's regard for creeds, confessions, is Machen's appreciation for other confessional Protestants. I, I like uh, to see, I was, or I liked to see anyway, and I was somewhat surprised to see, the respect that Machen showed for Lutherans in America. He's also had great respect for the Dutch Reformed, and of course there were many associations between the Dutch Reformed and Presbyterians through Princeton and Westminster and the like, and, and some of the great uh, early faculty at Westminster, such as Cornelius Van Til, Ned Stonehouse, R.B. Kuyper, um, were, were part or fruit of that, those kinds of relationships. Lutherans don't show up as much, but Machen also had great appreciation for the way that Lutherans maintained their standards, their confessional standards, and their attachment to their own creeds and catechisms. And he wrote this in What is Faith? It should, I think, be, make, be ma made much harder than it is now to enter the church, which is something that's a little, a little bit of a stand back. It should be harder to enter membership of the church. He goes on to explain, the confession of the faith that is required should be a credible profession. And if it becomes evident upon examination that a candidate for the ministry has no notion of what he is doing, he should be advised to enter upon a course of instruction before he becomes 
a member of the church. Actually, he's talking about membership in the church. Such a course of instruction, moreover, should be conducted not by comparatively untrained laymen, but ordinarily by the ministers. The excellent institution of the catechetical class should be generally revived. Those churches, like the Lutheran bodies in America, America, which have maintained that institution, have profited enormously by its employment, and their example deserves to be generally followed. And I would argue this was also the practice in the CRC for many years, where you'd have a catechetical class taught by the pastor, sometimes midweek. Eventually that kind of moved into Sunday school. And probably the case is in American Presbyterianism that Sunday school sort of rivaled catechetical instruction, um, and that's something that needed to be thought about and the OPC tried to resolve through Great Commission publications and the kinds of the ways in which catechetical instruction does enter the curriculum there of Great Commission publications. Um, And then at the end of his life, he gave a series of radio addresses. I'm not going to quote from any of these, but this is um, Christian Faith in the Modern World and the Christian View of Man were radio addresses that Westminster Seminary sponsored on the uh, radio station WIP in Philadelphia, now the the sports talk radio station there. Uh, We've looked for recordings of these and no one has found any, Uh, but these are two books um, and these are basically systematic theology that Machen would expound. I believe that they were broadcast on Sunday and what Machen is doing there is simply following the shorter catechism or systematic theology coming out of the Westminster Uh, confession. So obviously doctrine was a big part of the reason why Machen fought. It was part of the weapon that he used in fighting. But it's also the case moving then to the the importance of the church in Machen's fighting. Uh, This is again part of the ammunition he used is his doctrine of the church, is his understanding of the church. And this is, I guess, something that in preparing these lectures again, returning to some old notes, I was thinking about um, Machen having grown up in, in a lawyer's home and having a brother who was also an attorney. Uh, was there something about Machen's outlook that was fundamentally legal in ways? And you do see Machen appeal a lot to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church, just the way conservative political conservatives in America appeal to the Constitution of the United States. But it is the case, and this is something I think sometimes people don't recognize, that the confession and catechisms are part of the Constitution of of a Presbyterian church. It's part of the law of the church. So if you want to try to figure out how the church operates and how you decide, adjudicate matters, controversies before the church, you have a variety of instruments for doing that. You have a book of church order, you have the, the bylaws of the church or the bylaws for general assemblies and presbyteries and whatnot, but you also have these confessional standards. So it's not simply being a, of a legal outlook that would explain why Machen so often went in this direction in thinking of the church legally or constitutionally. I would actually probably argue that this is what inherently Presbyterianism has done since its origins in the 16th century with figures like John Knox, that you're trying to sort out the church's responsibilities. You're trying to sort out what, what the church's, church does, what it doesn't do, and, and the confessions and, and book of discipline are going to be ways 
of figuring that out. So Presbyterianism itself may have a kind of legal outlook to it. But this brings up a, a, a notion that is uh, sometimes not treated as much as it, as it could be that, and that Machen appealed to. And it's related to this constitutional question as well as the confession of the church. But this is the idea of the corporate witness of the church. And try to illustrate this by using a hypothetical case. Say you are a member of Art Street Presbyterian Church in 1925. This is a time of great controversy. Your, your pastor is Clarence McCartney. He's just been the moderator of the 1924 assembly. So you have a, con you have a congregation that's conservative. You are also in a presbytery that is conservative, a presbytery that's known to be so conservative that chances are if it had to try Machen, it wouldn't do it or it would exonerate him 10 years later. So it's a conservative presbytery. There may be some liberals there, but still, generally speaking, this is a wholesome presbyterian environment. So things aren't so bad for you as a member of this, this church. Your own congregation is sound, and your presbytery is also conservative. The, the denomination does some things you don't exactly like, but closer to home, life is pretty good for you as a member of this church. So is it the case that stuff happening in the Board of Foreign Missions, stuff, stuff happening on the mission field by mission, Presbyterian missionaries, does it affect you? And Machen would say it does because of the corporate witness of the church. This is from an article that he wrote in 1925 where he tries to elaborate this. The corporate witness-bearing of the church, Presbyterian church, is carried on especially through the pulpit. Under Presbyterian law, no man can permanently occupy a pulpit of the church without the church's endorsement. The preacher therefore speaks not only for himself, but for the church. That does not mean that the church seeks to impose any beliefs upon any man simply on the ground that they are beliefs of the church. It does mean that there is the, the, it does not mean that there is the slightest interference with the right of private judgment, but it means that if a man is to speak in a Presbyterian pulpit and obtain the endorsement which is involved in that position, he must be in agreement with the message for which the propagation of which the church, in accordance with this constitution, plainly exists. So by entering into a Presbyterian pulpit, you are therefore having the Presbyterian brand attached to what you say. He goes on, it is not merely the preacher in the first Presbyterian Church of New York, such as, say, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was informing the persons who throng that church that our own obedience to the commands of Christ is sufficient, that life produces doctrine and not doctrine life, that a man can first become good by following the example of Jesus and then ask afterwards about the meaning of his death. It is not merely this one preacher who is saying these things, so diametrically opposed to the gospel of Christ, but it is the whole Presbyterian Church. The Constitution of the Church plainly regards the preacher as a representative of the whole body, as a man who sets, for the, sets forth the system of doctrine taught in the Word of God, and it plainly gives the courts of the Church power to remove any preacher who is preaching what is contrary to that. But with power also goes responsibility. The whole church is saying to many, a little one, especially now that the issue has once been raised, this that you hear in the First Presbyterian Church of New York is the way of salvation, 
Heed the exhortation and you will be saved. So Machen is talking then about the witness of the church is corporate in its capacity, even in a specific congregation. And so this is the nature of a Presbyterian system of government. It's all connected. We're all responsible for each other. Um, John Murray, a a professor of systematic theology at at Westminster who studied at Princeton with Machen, was part of the founding faculty, well, maybe a year later, came in 1930, maybe not founding. I don't remember that specifically. Apologies to those out there offended by my lack of remembering this. Um, But Murray picks up on this in a later article himself, also under this topic of the corporate responsibility of the church. Murray wrote, again echoing Machen, every member of the body of Christ must be alert to the corporate functions of the whole church. It is only in this way that the witness of the church can be maintained and furthered. Sometimes exclusive preoccupation with the work and witness of the local congregation may arise from the persuasion that the denomination is strictly orthodox in its work and witness and that we need not concern ourselves about it. Let the premise be true, the inference is false. The unity of the, of the body of Christ is the principle which exposes its falsity, and experience has demonstrated that the sure road to decline and eventual heterodoxy is exclusive absorption with the work and witness of the local congregation. The whole denomination is a unit, and if one member suffers, all the others suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the others rejoice with it. Such organic unity makes isolation of any kind impossible. So both Machen and Murray are calling upon even ordinary church members in a local congregation to be responsible for the witness of the entire church. So this is one way, again, in which Machen's attachment to doctrine, the constitution of the church, the nature of the church, is an expression of his, his um, or one of the tools, or a couple of the tools by which he fought liberalism. And this then brings up another topic that's uh, part of, of what Machen is trying to do here, which is uh, something called the spirituality of the church, something, a doctrine that still is uh, dismissed by conservative Presbyterians as something that's simply a, um, uh, an aberration of 19th century Presbyterianism, something that people appeal to simply to uh, avoid taking a stand on slavery or even to justify slavery. And it, it's actually not that it, at all. This is a doctrine that is, appeal, is trying to get at what the church is called to do. Uh, and it's trying to limit the church to its own lane. And we have various institutions in the United States, or society more generally, that have lanes that they fill. Do we want General Motors, for instance, to, pro- to be providing police services, law enforcement in communities? Well, no, we don't. It may not be a good idea. Do we want Disney to administer Social Security? Probably not. So. Do we want the church then to engage in all sorts of things, or do we want the church to do what it's called to do? There have been two views in the history of the church, um, and it's possible in the history of Presbyterianism, American Presbyterianism, uh, and it's possible to isolate them under the new school, old school view. And this is why the 1837 split 
was so important to Princeton and what came after at Princeton and, and Machen's identification with the tradition of instruction at Princeton Seminary, the old school Presbyterianism. But the new school view, what was it? Well, it was well expressed by a new school Presbyterian, Albert Barnes, in a famous um, sermon that he gave where he says, and this is particularly addressing the issue of slavery as well, he says, the church owes an important duty to society and to God, and its mission will not be accomplished by securing merely the sanctification of its own members, or even by drawing within its fold multitudes of those who shall be saved. So, the work of salvation isn't enough. The burden which is laid upon it may be primarily the conversion of the heathen or the diffusion of Bibles and tracts abroad. The work which God requires it to do and for which it specifically has been planted there may be to diffuse a definite moral influence in respect to an existing evil institution on all that is wrong in social life, in the modes of intercourse, in the habits of training the young, and in the prevailing sentiments in the community that have grown out of existing institutions. God may have planted the church there to have a definite moral influence, a work for himself. Now, you could argue that this is simply the church having a moral influence on particular members. Um, but it, it does go beyond that uh, to then involve the church also being concerned with reform of society. Uh, and eventually organizations will develop from this view that lead to Christianizing America. This was happening during the so-called Second Pretty Good Awakening, uh, and, it, and it extends then into the period after the Civil War with Protestant ecumenism and the social gospel. So this view of the church is not very far from the idea of a Christian America. The old school view, though, is uh, the one with which Machen identified, and this comes from a number of old school ministers in the 19th century. The one I have here in particular uh, is from James Henley Thornwell, a prominent Presbyterian in South Carolina. Thornwell wrote, the church is not, as we fear too many are disposed to regard it, a moral institute of universal good, whose business it is to wage war upon every form of human ill, whether social, civil, political, moral, and to patronize every expedient which a romantic benevolence may suggest as likely contrib to contribute to human comfort. We freely grant and sincerely rejoice in the truth that the healthful operations of the church in its own appropriate sphere react upon all the interests of man and contribute to the progress and prosperity of society. But we are far from admitting either that it is the purpose of God that under the present dispensation of religion, all ill shall be banished from this earth and earth be converted into a paradise or that the proper end of the church is the direct promotion of universal good. So there you have both a different understanding of the church and what it's called to do, but also perhaps a different understanding of evil in the world and whether it will ever be eliminated short of the coming of Christ or whether it's something that people will have to live with. And there, of course, it's echo Thornwell and the old school are echoing what the Confession of Faith says that uh, when it says in, in chapter 31, well, uh, do I have it here? No, I don't. But where the church, chapter 31, it talks about the church only being 
involved in ecclesiastical aspects and only in extreme or emergency cases does the church speak outside its own jurisdiction. So this is something that the old school was trying to appeal to and something that Machen himself was trying to appeal to. And the reason for that old school view was to let Christ exclusively be the head of the church, and that meant teaching only the doctrines which he revealed in his word, worshiping him only in the way that he has commanded. So the primary task of the church is not an influence over society, but the salvation of God's people. And you see this again even in the Confession of Faith when you talk talks about what the work of the civil magistrate, which is to punish evil and to promote good in society, as opposed to the work of the church, which is to build the kingdom of God as a spiritual kingdom. Machen himself expressed this idea quite clearly, and I'll conclude with this. In a 1933 address given of all things to the American Society of Political and Social Science. So he's speaking to social scientists in 1933. The conference was devoted to the work of the church in the New Age. uh, Sorry, the responsibility of the church in the New Age. They had priests, rabbis, ministers speaking at this. And the the New Age, the reason why they were talking about this was this was the beginning of the FDR administration, four years into the Depression. What's going to happen? What should the church do? And this is part of what Machen said at that time to social scientists. First of all, there are certain things you cannot expect from a true Christian church. In the first place, you cannot expect from it any cooperation with non-Christian religion or with a non-Christian program of ethical culture. There are those who tell us that the Bible ought to be put into public schools and that public schools should seek to build character by showing the children that honesty is the best policy and that good Americans do not lie nor steal. With such programs, a true Christian church will have nothing to do. In the second place, you cannot expect from a true Christian church any official pronouncements upon the political or social questions of the day. And you cannot expect cooperation with the state in anything involving the use of force. Important are the functions of the police and members of the church, either individually or in such special associations as they may choose to form should aid the police in every lawful way in the exercise of those functions. But the function of the church in its corporate capacity is of an entirely different kind. Its weapons against evil are spiritual, not carnal, and by becoming a political lobby through the the advocacy of political measures, whether good or bad, the church is turning aside from its proper mission. Here, of course, Machen is thinking about prohibition, the church embracing prohibition, affirming prohibition, And that was the reason why Machen didn't get his promotion at Princeton in 1926. Then he finally says positively what the responsibility of the church is. It is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, nay, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord, that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free and that whoever possesses it has for himself 
and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, nay, all the wonders of the starry heavens, are as the dust of the street. That glorious message, that glorious truth, is what the church is called to do, and it's being distracted if it goes into even worthwhile programs that would improve society. So that's another piece of uh, Machen's um, uh, ideas by which he opposed liberalism, the Bible and doctrine from the last lecture, and now creeds and the church from this lecture, which leaves us one last lecture to go.